Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Prior to the message today, we want to take just a moment and welcome those who are listening to us today for the first time. As always, we invite everyone who listens to our program to reach out and let us know that they're receiving the broadcast. You can send a letter to us to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or you can simply go to flintriverpbc.org and find a variety of ways to contact us or follow us on social media. Our broadcast today is entitled, The Truth About Salvation. If I were to ask random people on the street what was necessary for them to go to heaven when they died, well, I would expect to get a plethora of answers, many of which that would not be biblical in the least. In fact, I'd venture to say that a great many people would simply reply, well, if you want to go to heaven when you die, you need to be a good person. Others might think that your good works have to outweigh your bad works. Some might insist that a person can be saved through their religious affiliation or keeping some sort of religious ceremonial rites, and of course that would vary from order of faith to order of faith. But the fact of the matter is, none of those things can save a person from a single sin. Now, prior to talking about salvation and how salvation is actually accomplished biblically, I want to talk to you first about the insufficiency of our works, that is to say, things that we do. Probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible is found in the book of Isaiah, which says that our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. In other words, there's nothing that we have to offer God that can help in a redemptive way. You see, the problem with the notion of earning our salvation is this. Since God is holy, and God is just, and God is also immutable, that is to say God doesn't change, sin cannot be swept under the rug. Exodus chapter 34 says that God will by no means clear the guilty. Think about it this way. Adam, our father, the first human being, he was created perfect in the Garden of Eden, he was an upright, natural man. He had no sin when he was created. He was good, yea, very good. He committed one single transgression. And in committing that transgression, he was judged and found guilty and cast away from the presence of God forever, expelled from the paradise and the presence of God that he had lived in prior to his disobedience. And think about this. He disobeyed only one commandment. He ate of a forbidden fruit that God commanded him not to eat. Now, you and I, not only have we committed one sin, we've committed more sins than we could possibly number. Isaiah 118 says that our sins are as scarlet. In other words, we're totally saturated and dyed with sin. We are like a fabric that has been immersed in dye and come out completely all one color, and for us that color is sin. We are sinners by nature, and we are also sinners by practice, and the number of transgressions against God's law that we have committed up until this moment in our individual lives. Well, it's so great that there's nothing that we could do 
to take away our sin. Think about this, and this is an example that I often use, and I think it makes the point very powerfully. Let's say a person is 25 years old and he commits a murder, the greatest of all violations that you and I can imagine. The worst thing that a person can do in human society is to take the life of another person. Let's say at 25, a man kills someone, but he escapes justice. Let's say he covers his tracks, he doesn't get caught, but then as technology advances at 55, that man is now suspected, the case against him has been proven, and he confesses to that murder that he committed some three decades before. That man could have lived a completely perfect life as far as the law is concerned, the law of the land. But that judge and that jury is going to find him guilty, and he is going to have to pay for that crime that he committed. In other words, and we understand this so perfectly through even our justice system, doing good doesn't take away the bad things that a person has done. We still have to pay the penalty for the crimes that we've committed. Now, think back to what we said moments ago about Adam and his transgression. One iniquity is enough to sever a human being from the presence of God and from paradise for all of eternity, forevermore. And we have far more than one sin. This point really comes out in the story of the rich young ruler, the fact that we're sinners and there's absolutely nothing that you or I could do to change that, but salvation has to come through something else, some other way. In Matthew chapter 19, there's a very powerful story, an interaction between Jesus and a rich young ruler who comes to him and asks him a very sincere question, a question that many people have today. Good master, he asks, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, if you're a Bible student, you know that there's no good thing that you can personally do that you would have eternal life, because... The good that you could do wouldn't take away the bad that you have done. And beyond that, because we are sinners, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. According to Psalm 36 and Romans chapter 3, there's nothing that we can do that is good in the sight of God by nature. Before we come to know Christ, everything that we do is tainted by sin, and even after salvation, when Paul would do good evil is present with him, we simply fail to realize so often how sin permeates us and how everything we do is tainted by it. Because of that, our righteousnesses, again, are as filthy rags, and there's nothing good that you and I can do to begin with, let alone something good enough to take away the debt of sin that we owe to God. This man comes to Jesus, and he asks this question, and Jesus replies, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Now, Jesus isn't saying, well, don't call me good because only God is good. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is God incarnate. He is the second person of the Godhead, conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin named Mary, born into the world, having lived a completely perfect life. Jesus is good. But Jesus' reply to this man is pointing out the fact that only God is good. Therefore, the only good man who has ever existed is the God-man, the man, Christ Jesus, God manifest in human flesh. 
Now, that initial reply to the man really drives the nail into the coffin that there's nothing we can do that is good that will merit eternal life. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one that is God. That answers the man's question. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He begins to reason with him. But, Jesus says, if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. Basically, what Jesus is telling him is if you go through life without ever having committed the first transgression, the first sin, well, then you won't be judged for your sins because you'll have no sins to be judged of. But the problem is that we're all already sinners from the moment of conception. And so what Jesus is doing is presenting an argument to this man to show him that, in fact, there's nothing he can do that is good that will enable him to inherit that he would have eternal life. Well, he begins to ask Jesus the question, which commandments, then, do I need to do to enter into life? And Jesus tells him, well, you know the commandments. Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And this man probably thinks that he has not broken any of those commandments. But the fact of the matter is, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, If I have looked upon another person with lust in my heart, I am guilty of that law that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. If I have hated someone without a cause or been angry with someone without a cause, I have violated the spirit behind the letter of the law that says, Thou shalt not kill. I have used my tongue in a cruel way to say mean things about people in my life, and I have slain people with the words that I have said about them. I have bitten and devoured people with my words, as it were, as James would say, as Paul would say. And so I'm guilty of basically all of the Ten Commandments. But this man is deluded. He thinks that he has done a good job because he doesn't understand the depth of his own depravity and the severity of God's judgment upon wickedness. This man says, well, I've done all this from my youth up. What do I lack? And Jesus says, if thou will be perfect, he gets to the heart of the matter of this man's sin. If thou will be perfect, go sell that thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But you see, this man, his sin was covetousness. He couldn't sell what he had. He couldn't give up his wealth. Now, Jesus isn't telling him, if you would only do that, then you could go to heaven. Again, the point that he's making here is there's nothing good the man could or would do, and as we will see in just a moment, it is impossible. But this man, as he hears that, he's sorrowful. He went away because he had great possessions. He was covetous. He wouldn't turn loose of the financial wealth that he had. And so Jesus' lesson to him was rather effective. There is no good thing that we could or would do that we would have life. Now Jesus turns and looks at his disciples and says, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And I would just point out that the kingdom of heaven has been at hand since the first century, as Jesus said, as John the Baptist said, as the apostles went and preached. His children are translated into it at the new birth, And as we repent and we believe, as we participate in the worship of him, as we follow him, as we pray and we study his word, we experience kingdom life as we live here in this world. His disciples hear this statement, and they were exceedingly amazed. And they say, who then can be saved? Now, they, like the rich young ruler, missed much of what Jesus had just said. 
Jesus answering them says in verse 26, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. With men salvation is impossible. If you think there's something good that you can do, or maybe if you're good outweighs your bad, or if just generally speaking you're a good person, and because of that you can go be with God in glory, please understand with men it is impossible because human beings by nature are sinners and sinners cannot stand before God. Something or someone has to take away their sin for people to be able to be with God in glory. Now, I love what Jesus says here. He doesn't just end with, with men, it is impossible. Wouldn't that be depressing if you ask the question, how is it that we can be saved from our sins? And the answer was, well, that's impossible. That would be, well, eat and drink and be merry, for we have no hope. Tomorrow we perish, and that's just it for us. We might as well enjoy life here, because after we die, it's going to be really rough for us for eternity. But that morbid idea is not the truth. While it is impossible with men, it is not impossible with God. With God, all things are possible. So if I were to give you one word, a one-word answer, as to how sinners are saved, it would be this. It would be grace. Sinners are saved by the grace of God. They're saved by God's free and sovereign grace and grace alone. Now, prior to moving on, I just want to give a few passages that express that, because it's one thing if I say it, it's another thing if I read it to you out of the Word of God. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, we read that God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved." We have redemption through his blood, in verse 7, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his what? Of his grace. And so, if I were to give you a word to summarize what salvation is all about and how it's accomplished, through what are we saved? Well, it's undeniably, from those passages, the grace of Almighty God, the free and sovereign grace of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, And verse 8, we read, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by grace. Notice that it is the gift of God. Both grace and faith are gifts that are given to us by God. Salvation is completely by God from beginning to end. This is a free gift, and it is not of works, lest any man should boast. Notice this, verse 10, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Salvation, according to the book of Ephesians, very powerfully and also very plainly, is by God's free and sovereign grace. I love that statement, not of works, lest any man should boast. Don't you know that rich young ruler, if he had eternal life by something that he had done, don't you know how much he would have bragged about that? Isn't that the way we are about most things that are positive in our lives? If you're an accomplished businessman, you might be tempted to brag about that. If you liken yourself as a good parent, you're probably one that would boast about the good job that you've done raising your children and 
those of us that have several children and adult children, if you think you're doing a really good job, just wait long enough as your little ones multiply and become older, and there will be times that you realize that if not for God's grace and parenting, that would be a failure as well. Whatever it is that we do in this world, we like to brag and we boast about it. Those of you that know me well know that I'm a local performing musician and I have several students. I get to work with a lot of great musicians and it's not very long you're around somebody until you realize if that person is one that likes to brag because every single group, every single celebrity they've gotten to play or tour with throughout their life as a musician, they're going to name drop and pastors are this way. Politicians are this way. Teachers are this way. We're simply natural braggers. We're boasters. We boast and we brag. If salvation were by works, then you and I could brag about it, but salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. In Titus chapter 3, we read that we're saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And lastly, as we think about salvation being by grace, from the book of Romans chapter 11, we read, and if by grace, then it is no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. Grace and works are mutually exclusive concepts so that if it be by one, it cannot be by the other. If you add works to grace, it ceases to be grace. And if you add grace to works, it ceases to be works. There is no hybrid system of grace and works that leads to a person's salvation. People Sinners, human beings, if they are saved, they are saved by the free grace of Almighty God. Now, here's what's so beautiful about this. If you look up the passages that I cited in the introduction to today's broadcast, Exodus 34, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, you read passages that talk about God by no means clearing the guilty. You'll also read about His mercy to those that love Him. Why do we love Him? Because He first loved us. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, that passage that talks about how our sins are as scarlet. The next statement says, they shall be white as snow. So you'll find these passages that speak about God's immutability and his judgment, his holiness, his righteousness. These passages that speak of that also have included mercy and forgiveness, redemption, and that might even be a contradiction in your mind. How can God by no means clear the guilty, but at the same time have mercy and give forgiveness to people? In other words, how can God be perfect and holy, never sweeping justice under the rug, a God who demands every single sin be judged in his judgment and his justice, and he is immutable? That is to say, he cannot change, but at the same time, this God who is holy and just and immutable, he forgives sin. What had to happen for you and for me to be saved by grace? It's not the sweeping of justice under the rug, obviously, but it is a reality, a reality that God's Word calls grace, a word grace that in its simplest definition is God's unmerited favor, 
unmerited in that we did absolutely nothing to earn it or bring it upon us, favor in that God shows us his love, mercy, and forgiveness. How is it that we can be saved by grace if we are, by nature, sinners? Well, this brings us to the subject of redemption and our Redeemer, Christ Jesus. God sent his Son into the world to die for the sins of his people. The eternal Son of God became a human being. He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He had never committed a single transgression. And yet, he suffered the wrath of God upon the cross of Calvary. Grace saves because Christ died for us. While God's grace is often referred to as his free grace, his free and sovereign grace, we should understand that even though grace is free to us, even though there's nothing we do to merit it, there's nothing we do to pay for it, there's nothing that we could bring to the table and say, God, here is what I've done, here is what I can present to you so I can be with you in glory. Just because salvation is free for us doesn't mean that it was free. No, God gave the greatest price that has ever been paid for the redemption of his people, and that is the life of his Son, Jesus Christ. Regarding Christ Jesus, In the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, and verse 17, we read, "...wherein in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people." Jesus Christ became a human being to make reconciliation for the sins of the people of God, and upon the cross of Calvary as our great high priest and the Lamb of God, the offering that was slain and presented to God as a sacrifice, Jesus Christ has taken away our sins. After the Lord was conceived in his mother's womb while she was yet a virgin, his adopted father Joseph, who was espoused to his mother Mary, began to worry about the fact that his espoused wife was with child and they had not known each other yet. And as he thought to put her away privately, God sends an angel to give this man a message and to tell this man why his wife, his espoused wife, is with child. This is Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. While he, Joseph, thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Notice that Jesus Christ would be born into the world to save his people from their sins, and that is exactly what he did upon the cross of Calvary. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, the latter portion of verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, by himself, upon the cross of Calvary, died for our sins. We are saved by God's grace, through the death of his son. Now, as we think about the concept of redemption and what all took place in this divine transaction between the Father and Son on our behalf on the cross, the best passage that I can think to look is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. It's one that I even have 
hanging on a plaque in my office at our church building. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is to say, Jesus Christ, having lived a perfect life, never once violating the law of God, but kept the law, as Matthew 5 says, to a jot and a tittle. As the book of Hebrews points out, on more than one occasion, Jesus had no sin of his own. As Peter says, he was a lamb without spot and without blemish. When Jesus died upon the cross for us, he took our sin upon him in the sense that he was the sin bearer, and God judged him as if he committed our sins. When that happened, God's righteous indignation against sin was appeased. His wrath was satisfied because Jesus died for our sins and because the thought of double jeopardy is an injustice. The wrath that we earn and deserve through our sinfulness has been forever taken away. There are so many metaphors for this in the Old Testament. Drowned in the bottom of the sea, led away on the scapegoat into the wilderness, never to be remembered again, separated as far away from us as the east is from the west. And as you know, on a globe, that's an infinite distance. Christ has taken away our sins. The prophecy of Isaiah 53 beautifully depicts this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep are gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our iniquities were laid upon Jesus upon the cross. He died for our sins. And answering the question, was God's wrath satisfied in that? Is God now no longer offended with us because of the death of his son? Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know why we know that God has accepted that sacrifice and that we stand redeemed? The year of Jubilee has come because God the Father raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and as he prolonged his days... We know that the Father has accepted that work. He's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, as Romans chapter 1 says. And so what are the ramifications of this work of redemption, of this salvation by grace? Let this sink in. No matter what you have done, no matter the sins of your past, you could be the chief of sinners himself, because guess what? God actually saved the chief of sinners in the New Testament— no matter what has happened in your life, no matter what's happening now in your life, no matter what happens in the future in your life, if you belong to Christ, if you are one of his people, your sins have been taken away. You might think, well, salvation by grace, this is absolutely unbelievable. It seems too good to be true, and you wouldn't be alone, but I'm here to tell you today that by the testimony of Scripture, salvation is by the free grace of God through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what the last words of Jesus were upon the cross in the book of John, chapter 19? And I think they summarize our hope and the point that I've tried to make to you today on the broadcast. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, It is finished. 
and gave up the ghost. Salvation is a finished work by the grace of our God through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. Though salvation by grace might seem too good to be true, it most certainly is, and you can lay your head down on your pillow at night and rest in that finished work of Jesus Christ, which does indeed set us free. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtozion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.